Hi, this is Jen Lee, and you are listening to Feeling Circle. So today's episode, we're going to go into a pretty interesting topic. I'm so excited to go into it. It's about the bamboo ceiling. Um, so I'm going to invite my guest, Rosemary de Aragon. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Rosemary is the Global Head of Industry, Retail, and CPG at Snowflake. She's an award-winning leader, uh, industry leader, and a nonprofit entrepreneur. She's been awarded by Forbes magazine for the 30 Under 30 list. And I'm just so excited to have her here as part of my podcast. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. I'm excited, too. This is going to be great. (laughs) I feel like you could probably talk so much about this topic. I know you can't, you know, talk for everyone, but just from your own experience, going from the director at Walmart e-commerce to, you know, being a global head within a tech company like Snowflake, you probably have some thoughts on this topic. Yeah, for sure. It's something that I run into a lot because... You know, in leadership in tech, it's very rare that I see other kind of East Asian females in leadership as well. So happy to happy to talk. (laughs) What should the listeners know about you before we dive into this topic? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, um, went to a Catholic school all my life in the Bay Area and then went to Berkeley um, for school, which is where I met Jen. <laughs> and after Berkeley, I moved to Seattle to work for Amazon. And then from Seattle, moved back to the Bay Area to work at Walmart Labs and then eventually at Snowflake. Um, I also worked my way through school. So I had a couple of really great opportunities to work while at school in a retail kind of adjacent companies. And one of those companies, InfoScout, uh, just recently became um, one of the largest retail data service companies. Um, they're a unicorn in the space. And that that's really, I think, a big part of my journey is that, you know, it's, it's all been in kind of like retail tech and e-commerce. And um, it all started from working my way through school. When you were younger, what did you think you would be? I'm still not like completely throwing away this idea. But when I was younger, I wanted to be the president of the United States in, or at least run in 2036. So I'm still like not throwing away that concept, but that's what I've always wanted to do. That's amazing, Rose. Please do it. (laughs) Please. That is insane. So career always meant so much to you then, right? Like how would you describe how much you value career? I didn't plan out my career from a young age. I kind of fell into a lot of the things that I'm doing now. My, my career actually started when I was, you know, 16 years old, when I founded my first uh, nonprofit organization. Um, it's still running today. It's called Empathy FX. We have five schools in Ghana. It's still, it's still happening. Um, but that was really where I got my start was in the nonprofit industry. Um, I didn't think of it as my career. I kind of just thought of it as something that I was doing on the side of all my extracurriculars. Um, And of course, going into politics, I wanted to be pre-law. So I wanted to, um, so so I actually, you know, was a political science major. I was like trying to do a triple major in like rhetoric, political science, philosophy. That, uh, That side kind of fell off as I 
became a senator at Cal and realized that politics isn't my thing. <laughs> I don't think I have the skin for it. Um, and so I ended up, not in terms of color, in terms of thickness, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 you got that. Yeah, so I ended up uh, dropping a lot of my pre-law majors and then uh, going to Haas as as like doing kind of business. Um, but But again, like I wasn't planning out my career. I was just kind of falling into things. And so I guess the question of like, has career meant a lot to me? I don't know. I feel like I've had a bifurcated career. I have like a whole path in nonprofits and then I have a path in tech um, slash retail e-commerce. Um, I, I don't I don't know that it'll always be linear either for the, both of those two paths. I feel like careers are just something that you you do and you try to be as successful as possible, at least for me, so that I can support my family. That's always been like my end goal is to climb as fast to the top so that when I eventually go on maternity leave, I can take as much time off as possible. And when I come back, I won't be worried about like my male peers kind of um, being in a place that I wanted to be. And I just never wanted to have that regret. So I've always strived to go the highest so that I could easily kind of transition into motherhood and without worrying or without regret regretting any of my decisions. You just want to make sure that you have the opportunities of enjoying your maternity leave without worry. It sounds like you just want to reach the top to ensure that you have options. That's exactly right. That is like my only ambition, like get somewhere to the top so that I can be comfortable when I ultimately have to biologically carry a child. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that, that, that's it. That's always been my goal. It hasn't ever been like, oh, I want to be you know, in retail or I want to be in nonprofits. It's always just been, I just want to be at at a level, a leadership level where I feel that I can leave for a certain amount of time and still have enough credibility on my resume to be able to come back at that same level. When did you realize that that was what you were striving towards and how did that become? Yeah, I, I've always felt a calling towards motherhood ever since I was young. I love children and often would take side jobs in college to care for kids that were neurologically disabled. Um, and so it was, it's always been a big part of my life too. My mom like held a child care in my home as I was growing up. Since I was young, felt this like calling towards motherhood, towards eventually starting a family. That started to really conflict with um, you know, my, my not not conflict with my plans, but it definitely became something that I had to think about and plan more seriously, um, even before getting married, actually, because I saw other female leaders reach a almost like a plateau or a a time where the adjustment back into the workplace, whether that be trying to find a job or just coming back at a level that they were comfortable with or that they felt was right. I saw them struggle through that. And so that really made me think like, how, how am I going to prepare myself such that I don't have to go through, um, you know, an impossible uh, choice of whether you want to be a career woman or a mother. And at some point I, I started realizing that people, people felt like they're, you know, doing poorly at one or the other. There was never a sense of like, I'm doing great in my career and I'm a great mother. It was always like, I'm either doing great in my career and therefore sacrificing things as a mother, or I'm doing 
great mm-hmm. as a mother and sacrificing things for my career. And I just never, I, I wanted, and you know, I, who knows what's going to happen, but I just, I just wanted to kind of future proof, you know, that, that part of my life. Mm. Well, I am feeling that. I am feeling like the unattainable standards that we as women have, like having to navigate career and being told, like, I feel like especially because our generation came out of the girl power as women, you can achieve everything. And I think there were a lot of benefits that came from that, but also this idea to be excellent at every single thing, which is not just your career and what you can do there, but like as a mom. And I feel like there are these extreme standards that we're put to. Um, and I feel like almost those extreme standards and that pressure that I think we all feel as females, like one of the impacts and the result of that for you specifically was to future proof as much as you can. Yeah, ex- exactly. I think we do have to recognize like as a society, we have progressed to this like awesome point where a lot of the husbands that I see in our generation are amazing fathers and like amazing husbands. Like to, to me, I I see hope in that. However, there's also the reality of the biological carrying of the child, which inevi- inevitably falls on a woman. And so like, I do think, yes, we like we have we are carrying a lot of burden. I think that the men of or or, you know, whatever the situation, but a, a lot of great partners and great healthy lifestyles that I've been seeing. However, there inevitably is this <laughs> issue of like someone is going to have to carry that child. And, and I think if you are that someone and you are someone who is also wanting to provide or at least, you know, contribute to the household in, in a certain way and whatever that looks like for you. I think there is an incredible amount of pressure because of that. And, and even though, you know, your partner might be trying their best to kind of alleviate some of that, a lot of that is just by, by nature of, you know, reality, like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the reality is, Mm-hmm. I'm going to be pregnant. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so and so it's like there's nothing that anyone can do about that. My husband can be like the best husband ever, but but at the mm-hmm. end of the day, like I'm going to be nursing. I'm going to be carrying the baby. And so how do we plan for that situation especially if you're someone who, you know, enjoys working or or enjoys contributing in what in your way to back to the household. So Anyway, I, that's, yeah. that's my spiel on, on careers and everything. It all ties back to like family planning. This is such a big learning moment for me because I've known you for so many years and I didn't realize like that this was such a core part of why you do what you do. Because for me, I just see this crazy superwoman who <laughs> is like, like, I don't know, beating the odds of like the bamboo ceiling, but also like literally all these invisible barriers, but getting to the top. And for me, you at your age, being a global head of, you know, like a huge vertical within your company is such a big achievement and something that I really look up to. So I guess let's go into that. And I want to ask you, how is it being like such a boss ass leader in tech? As an Asian female <laughs> woman, because I am so, 
I'm honestly so proud of you. I'm like, yes, please represent. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't think of myself that way, which like, and I don't know that I have many opportunities to like sit back and think about and like reflect right on where I am today. So yeah, I don't, I don't think of that all the time. For me, my day to day is just, it's it's all over the place. I feel like my brain is constantly thinking about like so many different projects all at the same time throughout the workday. I I still struggle with my position. Um, just given you know I I have a team of people who could be decades older than me or have decades more experience than me. That definitely keeps me very very humble because. First of all, it could be unbearable to report to someone who's younger than you and thinks that that, that they are this amazing Asian boss woman. Um, so, so number one, I try to kind of press that view down as much as possible, at least in the workplace. And then secondly, I don't know, it's, it's a part of the way I was raised, I guess, just being Asian, right? Like my mom would like force me to spell out the word humble on the way to school every single day, um, especially if... I did something wrong, which I was, I was quite a rowdy. I'm going to have like the craziest child because I was a rowdy, like rebellious, tomboyish, like child. My mom, like as a part of my raising would always say like, be humble, be humble. And like make me smell, smell like H-U-M-B-L-E as we went to school. And so I think it is a part of like our Asian-ness to mm. deflect from those types of kind of hyperboles of like, oh, like Asian boss women. I, I'm just kind of doing my thing. I, I don't know. And, and at the risk of like shrinking towards the light. But again, like that's something that I struggle with because of our upbringing and just how, how we were culturally raised. It's part of, it's ingrained in us really at, at a young age mm. to, to behave that way. That is so fair. And I'm so glad that you brought it up because, yeah, I think that is a cultural tenant that it's a double-edged sword. I think, one, humility is such a value that is, I don't know, I think it can be a way of life that brings a lot of joy. Um I know that for myself, humility is something that I keep core to myself that I'm always pursuing. I think that's one of the reasons why I love to travel because I like to know how big the world is because it gives me perspective on my life that like there's millions, billions of lives out there. And I'm just one of many of this huge, gigantic universe that exists. And for some reason, that brings comfort. I don't know why, yeah. but there's... There's yeah. comfort that humility brings. And so I think that's one of the greatest things about humility. But as an Asian American, like you said, the the other side of that is when it comes to like being a, in the corporate world, visibility is visibility, building relationships and building your brand and making it known is a core strategic way of moving up within your career. Yes, 100% agree. In fact, I think that is the way that people move up is like, so if you can learn to delicately balance, like showing your achievements and, and bringing visibility to them without bringing on, like a, attention to yourself as mm -hmm. a personal achievement, um, but, you know, using we statements and things like that. I, I actually think that is the way to move up in the corporate world is like 
understanding that balance of who needs to see which achievements, um, remembering your own achievements. I technically have like my own document that I keep of everything that I work on because you, you forget. Um, mm-hmm. And being able to whip them out, you know, on a whim, like mm-hmm. this is what I've done and proving out your value. I mean, those don't have to be mutually exclusive with being humble. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, but I yeah. 100% agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're already diving into the topic of bamboo ceiling, which I wanted to define first because I know it's not a term that everyone knows. And it's honestly a pretty recent term for me too. I didn't know that this word existed, but once I learned what it meant and what it was, then I was just like, yes, I've lived this. I've seen this. I know what this is. And I'm just grateful that there's a term around it. Do you want to give it a try to define bamboo ceiling? Um, and if not, I do have what Wikipedia defines as bamboo ceiling. I am ceiling. sure that you can do a much better <laughs> job of this. Um, yeah. I, go for it. I don't even want to try. I feel like I know what it is, but I don't know that I would explicitly be able to gracefully put it into the right words. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll go ahead and... Um, refer to Wikipedia. Uh, So this is the extent of my research prior to our call. Um, So the uh, the term bamboo ceiling was coined and popularized in 2005 by Jane Hyun in Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling, Career Strategies for Asians, where she addresses the barriers faced by many Asian Americans in the professional arena, such as stereotypes and racism, I'd love to ask, what did the bamboo ceiling look like for you and your journey from your own experience? I'll start here. I mean, I think in in tech and especially in the Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, a lot of people will say, like, you live in the Bay. Like, there's so many Asians. Like, what what do you mean? Like, in fact, like, you know, the, the minorities are almost flipped. Like, you guys are the majority. Like, I hear that all the time. Um, yes, that might be true from, from a statistical perspective that we have a larger number in terms of volume of, of Asians. But I think the nuance comes when taking a look at the number of Asians or the percentage of Asians at a certain level and below versus a certain level and above. And in my experience, we'll, we'll kind of draw that line at the senior director level whatever that means to whichever company. Um, but typically I've seen that the senior director and above um, tends to be, uh, and I use the term male pale and went to Yale, um, but that's, that, that's kind of what I've been seeing. And then from the director and below, it's like all Asians, including East Asians and South Asians. And to me, like that seems like a, a big injustice <laughs> because you know, many parts of our country were built on the back of Asians. And I see that being perpetuated in the tech world where you have a majority of the engineers, the ones actually building companies in in tech being Asian. And then you get to this like leadership level and you start to realize, oh, wow, like a lot of the people making decisions about the companies that they aren't necessarily building with their own hands are, uh, you know, white. And yeah. to me, that that that's kind of messed up from from face value. And for, for me, like from a macro perspective, that's how I would define like what I have seen to be the bamboo ceiling. I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. other things as well. Like there's a lot of things that 
we almost bring upon ourselves in our upbringing that causes us to, um, you know, be extremely humble or like respect authority and not want to raise things in a meeting room, not want to speak out our opinions, even though we have, and we want to get our opinions just right and our words just right. So a lot of that, yes, is on us, but there's also a lot of allyship that is required to make Silicon Valley look and feel the same across ranks. There's a few things that came to mind from everything that you just said, which was all really good. The first one was, we hear all the time, what are you talking about, Asians being a minority in tech? There's actually, in numbers, there's a lot. That has really discounted and like invalidated a lot of my experiences when I've shared because I am in sales. And I would say for generally a lot of tech sales organizations, there's not a lot of people that look like me, an Asian female in sales. Agreed. Yeah. I, I work a lot with sales org as well. I, I mean, I came from product. So I saw like all the engineers and product managers and stuff that were pretty much all Asian or South Asian. And then I now am in a company where sales is a big part of my role in our, in our organization and how we and who we interact with. And yeah, I see the same thing. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the second part that I wanted to also just validate is like basically the ratio. So, yes, there is a good majority of Asian Americans within the tech uh, industry. But when we look at the ratio, it just doesn't make sense. How is it that there is a good amount of like Asian Americans in tech? But when you look at the senior leadership side of things, like it just the ratio doesn't make sense. Some type of systemic barriers or systemic things is keeping Asian Americans from reaching more senior level positions. You know, when I think about like why that is, some of it is that we were raised with these values that are not compatible with gunning it in corporate America. Like, I mean, a big part of how I operate in the workplace is code switching, is trying to even things like changing the way I speak, um, not changing, but but like speaking in such a way that blends in better with, you know, the, the population I'm talking to, or like things like, you know, suppressing the instinct to not um, talk about myself and my achievements. I mean, that is like a, an instinct and a behavioral instinct that I was raised with because, you know, in Asian culture, it's like, put your head down and your work will be recognized. Well, that's not corporate America at all. <laughs> that's not the tech world either, right? You have to own your achievements and you have to speak to them, you know, accurately. And you also have to really understand like relationships and dynamics between other people in the workplace. And the thing about, I think, Asian Americans are very good at like reading people's body language because a lot of us are born to immigrants where we've had to infer the meaning of things without like verbal communication. So a lot of us actually can see certain things and can read between the lines. But the problem is, and, and we might have very well formulated opinions, but the mm. problem is that we, I at least, have always had to suppress that instinct to just keep it to myself. And I'm a pretty, you know, I'm an ambivert. I'm a pretty extroverted person in the workplace as well. And like, mm. if I have to do that, then for introverts, it must be 
even more so. And it, it must be frustrating because you might have all these insights that you think are spot on or that, that like, why can't anyone else see? Well, the reason is because you have to say it. And, and that is an instinct that like you have to unlearn and relearn in order to like make it to where you want to go, especially in, in, in tech specifically. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking was like the theme of assimilating and blending in versus standing out. How would you describe your experience around feeling the need to sometimes blend in and be professional, which I feel like professional in tech industry is talking like a white man, presenting yourself like a white man. Okay. And I know these are really big generalizations and big stereotypes and not everyone is like this, but I think the general idea of what professionalism stems from this idea of what does a white businessman look like? And that's where professional standards come from. So it is in some sense, I think, being able to excel in corporate America means that if you want to thrive and be recognized, there has to be some assimilation to these standards or aligning yourself with these standards. But also at the same time, how do you balance showing up as your authentic self? I think it's a great question of like, what is the balance of blending in versus standing out? I think that my life has been a story of blending in from a young age or at least striving to blend in. I think that is the story of most or many rather um, Asian Americans that were born into or raised in schools that were multicultural or a majority that didn't look like them. And so from a young age, we learn how to figure out the world. We learn how to navigate. We learn how to not have an accent or to pronounce things just right or um, to not bring your stinky dumplings to lunch or to, you know, like we try as much as possible to blend in and not be a weird outsider. And as I have grown into my career, I've started realizing that by nature of what I look like, I already stand out because I don't look like, you know, anybody that I work with in my team. I am mm -hmm. female, first of all, which is already, you know, I'm Asian and I'm also young. And by nature of who I am, the, the reality is that I already stand out. And so I think th there is a delicate balance and, and especially in the first two years, and I, I always kind of think of corporate life and roles and things like that in terms of like two year cycles. In the first two years in a new role, I tend to try to blend in as much as possible and prove my worth. And, and I always give myself two years to build a reputation, a bulletproof reputation. That's like what I always strive for, for the first two years. That's, that's all I do. So I don't rock the waters. I don't raise, you know, issues. I pretty much for those two years prove out my value and strive for excellence and create a bulletproof reputation. And part of that is blending it. Now at, at the two year mark is really where I begin to show how I stand out as uh, in terms of my brain and in terms of my work ethic. 
And for me, that formula has worked very well in the past, you know, three or four jobs that I've been in. Uh, it does amount to basically a delicate balance of blending in for a certain amount of time, but then like knowing when to stand out. And one last thing I'll say is one thing that I like to say about good leaders, you know, what defines a good leader or what defines a, a great employee. To me, it's someone who knows how how fast and how hard to push a gas pedal and and when to lift off of the gas pedal and when to put on the brakes. And learning the very strategic nature by which you need to push gas pedals versus brakes in terms of not only your emotions, but also in terms of your work ethic and and how much you pour yourself into work, that is really what makes an excellent worker. Now, that's not all that we are like defined to be. But to me, that's what really tells me that this person is professionally mature. So when you're talking about like, how do you, how do you define professional? That's, that's how I would define it. I don't think that like any emotions are out of, out of scope in the workplace, but it's just about when to show them and when to press the brakes on them, as well as like in terms of work-life balance, there's no perfect work-life balance, but a very professional, mature employee will know when to press the gas pedal and burn the midnight oil and work all night. And then when to lift off and say, okay, I'm kind of feeling a little bit burnt out. And then when to press the brakes and say, I need to go on vacation. That kind of paradigm and concept to me is how I define like how I work and then also how I look for talent um, in tech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really insightful. I really liked that tactic of two-year timelines, two year to build your brand, make it bulletproof. And then the next cycle being, all right, let me show you what I can do. Uh, I've been at my company for going into eight years now, Rose. Isn't that insane for our generation? Crazy. Yes. Um, but it's because I've been recognized enough, you know, enjoyed my time, enjoy the people, enjoy the culture. This was taught to me early on. It aligns with your strategy, which is lean in to lay down. Ali <laughs> <laughs> Wong. Yes. Yes. A shout out to yeah. Ali Wong. But it's basically yeah. build your brand, make it bulletproof. It does take time and energy and a lot of work to build it. But once you build a brand that then transcends kind of yourself you can find ways to then lay down and like relax but like there is power in visibility building brands and then letting that work for you so that you can find time to then like relax when you need to and enjoy the fruits of your labor basically yeah exactly i i 100 yeah. i love that <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly what I'm talking about. And it's Ali Wong, who I love. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like find a balance that you don't burn yourself out. Because I think when I see people like go in and out of different roles, it's because, okay, this is my opinion, but this is what I've seen is people put in so much, give so much of themselves that then they, you know, expect something in return from the organization, but when they don't get it, there's resentment that comes, right? So it's like finding a balance where you can give, but also take to a way that it's sustainable, like any relationship, yeah. I guess. 
Um, yeah, 100%. G- going back to the bamboo ceiling, um, you mentioned a few things that you've seen, which is like this uh, this pressure to like blend in, but also stand out. What are some other barriers that you see specifically for Asian Americans in the workplace? It's a good question. Well, there's a lot of barriers. I think some are internal. Some are just preconceived notions. I actually find that most people in the Bay um, tend to actually be quite open-minded. I mean, non-Asian Americans tend to be quite open-minded. And I think but, but with that being said, I think what persists is unconscious biases when they're interacting with an Asian person. And and look, I think there's subcultures within even when we say Asian, because oh, yes. like East yeah. Asian, very different from Southeast Asian, very different from South Asian and the preconceived notions, even amongst the Asians that come <laughs> between mm-hmm. each other, right? There's this whole subculture the feeling that like, at least from what I've seen, one of the subconscious biases is that Asians work really hard. That's like a subconscious bias. Like when you're speaking to an, another Asian person, or if you're non-Asian, you're speaking to an Asian person, there is this sense of like, you know, they're, wow, like they're working really hard. And at the same time, like when you walk into that conversation, you might feel like, oh, like they're Asian, <laughs> but, but look, mm-hmm. like, we have to be clear that like, no, we work hard, like not because we're Asian, but we deserve the same. We work hard because we want and deserve mm-hmm. the same level of um, respect and awe of that work yeah. ethic than any other ethnicity where I don't see that as much. I don't see like, you know, if, if somebody is going like above and beyond and they're working really hard and they're putting their all right. You just think like, oh, well, you know, that it's part of their culture. Well, no, <laughs> like we mm-hmm. also deserve the same amount of like, wow, that is, mm-hmm. you know, good for you. Like that, that is a great, a great thing. So I, I think that like a lot yeah. of the barriers that we face are just like either internal or a result of like unconscious bias from and to that, your peers. To the unconscious bias, there was this psychological experiment that was done by two researchers on the bamboo ceiling, and when and their findings revealed that East Asians who do not conform to racial stereotypes of Asians and possess qualities such as assertiveness, dominance, and leadership skills are less likely to be popular in the workplace. Um, and this this yes. is from Wikipedia, so <laughs> I don't it know. Is- it is personally yeah. true. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, from what I've seen, because I I don't think that like those those stereotypical characteristics are praised. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. like, you know, put your head down and like, just do your work and don't talk. Like, that's not, that's not praised in the workplace, even though that is a totally valid, you know, pers- work personality. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I do think that like, I am one of the few Asians that is like outspoken that comes off as, I don't know that I'm assertive. I don't want to use that word, but like that, that is that one example is I go straight to the leader. So that's what I've always done since I entered the corporate world. If I have an issue or if I need something, I will go straight to the budget holder. So even if that is, you know, an SVP or a VP, I will somehow like do the socialization to go straight 
to the person who makes the decisions. I didn't see that behavior from a lot of my Asian American peers, mm. even when I first started working. And like, to me, I thought that was happening because there is this inherent in instinct to respect your elders, which translates into respect people who have been at the workplace more than you. And I had to kind of stifle those instincts and relearn to go directly to your skip, go directly to your VP. And actually what I found is like most of the VPs, most of the, the leadership in the Bay, they're very open to wanting to meet with you. At least that's the culture that I've been in for all the companies that I've worked at is they're, they're quite open. It's just, are you brave enough to go to them? Mm. Are, do you have the the political savvy or the emotional IQ to manage the pre-socialization that has to be done for your idea to get approved. Mm. And those behaviors and those meetings and those types of discussions, I didn't see as often with my Asian counterparts, but I saw often with my white counterparts. And and so I, I completely agree with that. I could see why yeah. that is the case. And and certainly for me, it's been, you know, one of the reasons that as we use the frame, phrase earlier, that I stood out as an Asian yeah. leader. Yes. I'm so glad to learn that tactic from you because um, I will say that the door has always been open for me to reach directly to my leader, especially since like of all the things that I've contributed over time. And I don't leverage that relationship enough. I might delete this and edit this out of the podcast, but like I started this podcast because I expected this promotion that I didn't get. I just found out like a month ago and I was so angry and so resentful. And I was just like, you know what? I've literally given my entire 20s to LinkedIn. Obviously, this was when I was like feeling everything. LinkedIn has done a lot of good things for me as well. But I was just in a place of like, okay, I bring millions of dollars to LinkedIn every year. I solve a lot of business challenges. I do so many things outside of my immediate role. And yet when I leave LinkedIn, what will I be left with? I want to build my own assets that I can keep. Yeah. And like, that's how this podcast has started. Well, I mean, okay. Yeah. I'm so glad you shared that. Like one thing that comes to my mind is like, yeah, I think that as Asian Americans, as part of the theme, like we think a lot about like who we are and like our identity. I think that we were raised not almost like that it was a bad thing if you wanted something for yourself, because we were raised in such a culture where you care about family and your community above all else. So what are you doing? What do you want for your family? What do you want for your community? That is that is really what you should be striving for. And if you're talking about yourself, you were raised with this notion that like it was almost selfish, but what is needed to land promotions from a fail-proof standpoint is to be very, to, to focus as much energy on like who you are as what you want and like to vocalize the what you want part, like mm -hmm. even more than who you are. And like my heart breaks for that situation. For me, like, what I have seen to work is if somebody comes to me and is like, I want to be promoted or mm -hmm. I'm walking. <laughs> if you were a kid and you went up to your mom and you're like, I want sushi tonight. Like your mom would probably be like, uh, screw you. Like we need mm -hmm. to figure out what the family wants. What does your brother want? What is like, what does your grandpa need? And, and so you're raised with this feeling of like, I can't, 
I can't vocalize what I want. Like that's Mm -hmm. selfish or that's like, that's self-interested. Well, guess what? Like corporations are self-interested. Corporations are always thinking about what they want. And so we also, we too have to like suppress that part of us that is not willing to go to the table and be like, Mm -hmm. this is what I want. And you don't give it to me. Like Mm -hmm. I'm leaving. And, And even though that sounds so callous because it's not in our culture and it's not in our instinct to do that mm-hmm. because we were always like, don't, don't say that. Or like your parents might be even embarrassed if you were to go up to them in front of their friend and say like, I want X, Y, Z, like your parents would be kind of embarrassed. Like, oh, don't say that. And, but, but like, mm-hmm. like hearing your story and like the, the struggle, right. Especially in promotions, mm-hmm. I hear it actually over and over again. Like part of it is as the leader, if somebody comes to me and says like, and, and by the way, now that I've managed multiple different types of people, I am starting to see why this works. Like when they come to me and they're like, I need a promotion by this date or I'm leaving for me. It makes it really clear as a manager, like, okay, if I don't give this to this person, they're leaving. And that is my problem. That's a problem for me. I don't Mm -hmm. ever see East Asians doing that, especially females, especially East Asian females. And many of them follow me on Instagram and, and they might see this, but look, they never came to the table to tell me like, this is what I want. And they're probably going to listen to this. And, and they know that to be true. And, and look, like, even if they were the ones that were contributing like 200%, if I have somebody, somebody else who's contributing a hundred percent and doing their job, like if they were telling me that if I don't promote them by this time or they're leaving, that then becomes to me a management problem. And so now I have to, in my calibration process, figure out Who of these two people do I give the promotion to? This person who is like amazing and I love them, but I actually, I don't know if they would leave if, if I didn't give them a promotion and they haven't asked for it versus like this other person who explicitly was like, I am going to leave. I see the world in a whole different perspective now. And I, and like the more that I talk to Asian Americans, the more I say like, you have to be very vocal consistently every quarter, at least Mm -hmm. once a quarter, if not once a month about like your Mm -hmm. timelines, about like what you want. Again, not an innate characteristic or stereotypical characteristic of what it means to be Asian American. But that has been the biggest crutch. And and like, yeah, it just get passionate about because it breaks my heart when people work so hard and they don't get that in return. And like, you just have to remember your company, like the family stuff that they feed you from a culture standpoint is a tactic it's a tactic mm-hmm. for them to retain you. The so free mm-hmm. lunches, the free dinner, it's a tactic for them to retain you. And so therefore, you, you too have to be tactical. You have to also be strategic and you have to be self-interested because the, mm-hmm. the person on the other side is yeah. doing that. They are, are being tactical and strategic yeah. and self-interested. So like, yes, no matter how much of family culture tech tells you you are yeah. in, it's... It is for a reason. It's for a reason. Like, and so you too have to also like come to the table that aggressively, right? And and with that kind of Jedi mind mind power. (laughs) So I know that's my next step. But like, why is there so much fear and hesitation to go directly to the top? I almost felt initially, do I need permission from my immediate manager to go straight to the top? Like, this is such an Asian thing. I mean, like. It's not permission. Like I would say it's not permission, but there could be 
socialized nation that like yes. based on you know and you, you have a very high eq like you you'll, it'll be fine but like but you know just for the listeners out there yes don't obviously just go straight to like have common sense right there's there could be some socialization but absolutely yeah. you should go to the decision maker you are currently listening to feeling circle if you are enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support please subscribe and follow thank you the way that I approach those conversations is I have a one-on-one and I always say like, you know, every two years or every quarter or every one year or make it up, whatever it is, so that it, the fault is put on the timeline, not on you. Mm-hmm. Every quarter or every one year or every August, whatever the hell it is, mm-hmm. I personally have meetings with my skip and, and I'll tell them in order to XYZ, like whatever it is that you're striving for. And and that way, like it doesn't ask for permission. It it almost says, like, this is the way that I operate ever since before I got here. And this is just how I operate. I'm not asking for permission, it's just what I do. And like the the onus gets put on the timeline or on whatever that framework is. And if they have an issue with the framework, then that's something, but you know, we can fix the framework. But it's almost like saying, like, every October I have yeah. this personal goal that I will reach out to my skip to make sure that everything is going according to plan. And of course, as you know, my plan is to get to this next level and it's coming up in about 30 days. So I'm planning on scheduling that. Then you go, is there any, any advice or anything that you, you know, and blah, 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 blah. So that way, like, you're not asking permission. You're just saying like, based on the framework that I have for myself and my own career development, the time is coming up. I need your help to help prepare for that conversation based on this like imaginary framework that I have in place. Gold. That is that is gold. I'm going to use that moving forward for the rest of my career and my future. Maybe I'll be global head too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then next question is what are some internal battles or like self-doubts that you experienced? How do you overcome those moments? I often have self-battles about my age, <laughs> still quite insecure about it. Um, I, I was always, you know, the, the youngest in role or like one of the youngest. And it's always been a big insecurity that people would take me at face value by what I look like versus my brain. And also like Asians look young. So I'm going to look like this, hopefully, God willing, for a long time. So what does that mean for us as Asian females with skincare routines that look young? And like, how do we command that authority just just by into the room or like the way that you dress or the, the, the kind of how you speak or, or like how you put things? Um, I struggle with that a lot all the time (laughs) I struggle with that. Like in my day to day, it actually fuels a lot of like my perfectionism in the workplace of like, I have to say exactly the right thing. My decks have to be like perfect. They they have to be instantly understandable. And like the way that I dress and what I wear and how my voice sounds like has to be exactly what people would expect of a rising leader. And like that, that to me is like, yeah, my biggest self-doubt is just like around my age, which hopefully soon I won't have to worry about. (laughs) 
Rose, I'm just resonating like you don't even understand. Like, I feel like we're almost having same conversations, but like obviously different contexts and different things. To relate myself to that is, so this promotion that I didn't get, I don't necessarily need this promotion because with the level that I'm at now, I can go into leadership. But for me, I feel like when people see me, they don't see me as like a enterprise account director, like this super professional woman. They see the first thing that they see when they see me is this Asian female that looks young. Yes. You know, yes. so for me, the reason why I wanted this promotion, even though I don't need it, is because when I go into leadership, I know that there might be self-doubts or not self-doubts. Maybe there is self-doubts, but they're like the people who see me in these leadership positions. I anticipate this feeling of not belonging and physically by looks, I don't belong. But also what if they think just by nature, but by being an Asian female that I don't belong in this leadership position? Oh, God, I need to then have the highest credentials. Even though people say job titles don't matter, this level promotion, it could mean that much more of just ensuring that they see that I reach the highest of levels and that I belong here. Yeah. yeah. So it's like yes. that in aligns yes. with like your idea of perfectionism, decks, the way you show up, everything needs to be perfect in case that people don't think we belong. So it's like this this fight and struggle against this feeling of belongingness. It's like there are already a million it, doubts that other people have or excuses or like um, reasons for not believing we should be where we are. And of those reasons, the obvious ones are number one, I am young. <laughs> and that's not something I can control, even though like in my even though my brain might be like operating at, at just the in fact maybe even more knowledge than people who have been in the industry for like 30 years but it doesn't matter when i walk in it's already i've already given them a reason to doubt me i'm young i'm i don't look like them i'm female i'm asian right and i don't want to ever give them any other reason to doubt why i have gotten where i am and so yes like I do have to put on like in my LinkedIn profile, I do have to like make sure that it's pristine. And I have to make sure that like I mentioned the awards that are like objective awards or like things that are, are like proven by a third party. Right. And, and these are things that I don't think others, you know, have to think about because they're, they don't come in on the defensive the way that we are because the way that we look. So yes, we are more on the defense, but I'm wondering yes. how do you, how do you overcome that internally? I don't even know that I would be qualified to answer that question because I'm still like insecure about my age. It's just true. Um, but how, how I make steps to overcome maybe. One is like, I think over time, after a month or two months or after a couple initial meetings, like, Number one, I build my brand so that people hear about me before they meet me. And, and so the more that people can talk about you and vouch for your excellence, the less work and the less doubts that you will have about yourself. It goes back to that, like building a bulletproof brand. That is, that is my strategy, really. So number one, that step to overcoming is like building that brand, 
allowing for your reputation to precede you. And that to me, that is like a tactical way. Secondly, you can't just will yourself to not be insecure, <laughs> but you can be honest about which specific aspects you're insecure about. Like for me, it's like, it's my age. I, I am the boss to people who grandparents, to people who are older than my parents, to people who've been in the industry for 25 to 30 years, which by the way, is about as long as I've been on this earth. And so you can be honest about your insecurity. And for me, like just steps to overcoming is like being honest about the reality of how other people perceive me and understanding the truths of them. And that helps me navigate, like, how do I deal with it? And it's usually person by person. Some people I have to, like, for example, with one of my directs, like I just laid, I laid it out plainly to him, right? I was like, look, you have been an SVP at many tech companies that have now, are now unicorns. You, you know, have worked at this retailer for 25 years before doing that. And you have held the position of my boss. Like, I understand where we're at right now. Um, and I want you to know that I 100% respect that. And I don't think that, you know, I know more than you. Like, you have been in that position for longer than I've been born. You know, it's person by person, but helping to overcome some of that self-doubt is just like being real with the issue and then proceeding to like come up with an action plan person by person to figure out what does this person need to hear? What does this person need to hear? And what are their insecurities and issues with me, you know, being either their peer or their boss and trying to be very open about my insecurity where I am and then yeah. kind of meeting them where they are. That's, that's been kind of my tactic. That's, I think that's the answer of being a great leader. I've had so many leaders in my life that like, obviously macro conditions aren't good, sales aren't coming in, but you brush the things under the rug and just be inspirational in a way that's like not realistic and that's not in the moment. Like it just doesn't make sense. You can already tell you're an amazing leader because you pursue the objective truth and you address the truth in a way where it's transparent, honest, vulnerable. And I think vulnerable, real leaders are the inspirational ones, the ones that are best to work with because you know that the heads are not in the clouds, that we're all down yeah. to earth together. So yeah. that's so amazing. And I think that was a great example for anybody and any anyone who might be leading an organization or a team that might have a diverse range of direct reports. It's not about creating this fake front leader. It's about really just meeting where each of people are at and just being real and just being you. Yeah. So amazing. Um, I know we're over time, so I will wind down with our rapid fire questions. Um, so <laughs> question one, what is a message or theme that keeps showing up in your life? Um, we didn't get into it. A theme that is like persistent is, um, that at the end of the day, life is all about relationships. It's all about like how you relate to each other and how you relate to your friends, how you relate to your coworkers and like nothing else really matters. Career doesn't really matter. Like nothing else matters. The work doesn't even really matter. It's just about how you are with each other. And honestly, I think 
so many people are going to relate to this or and so many people are going to just like learn tactfully like what they can do to up their career and it's like i love that you in with like real honest ways of no, it's not just because I'm this amazing person, but it's because it took these texts and understanding like the pressures and them. Like it was just so real and really. So I think even in this call, people felt that even though we didn't explicitly talk about cool, like, yeah, <laughs> and relating. Yeah. Um, okay. Question number two: What is something new you learned about in the last year? Um, this is a hard one. I feel like I learned a lot all of it about myself all the time. Okay, in the past, I used to um, be obsessed with like personality frameworks. So like Myers-Briggs or like Enneagram or like love languages or like whatever, whatever. I think in the last year, I've learned that like a lot of those things are, which I always knew like a lot of those things are just a means to an end, a means to have a great conversation to like share about who you are. But I think I I really like went deep into the thought around like the gray area and the nuance of certain personality traits in certain situations. So I would say like that's probably the new thing that I learned is like, yeah, I was really struggling with like the the like spontaneity versus planning thing because I've seen like different flavors of that come out in my personality and I've just been kind of thinking or dwelling on that for the past year. <laughs> Okay. So what I'm hearing is like no category can lose you. Like you are yeah. a human and you transcend those things and you can be in the gray and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is a source of encouragement for you when things are rough? Um, hmm. Well, I have, and, and we didn't get into this either, but I have had a couple near-death experiences. I have a heart condition. I still kind of struggle with it here and there. And every time things get rough, like I've always, I've always exercised this tactic that I learned all the way back then when I was going through like all my heart issues and then finally having heart surgery at Berkeley, which is like to zoom out. When things are really rough, like I always zoom out and think like in the grand scheme of things, is everything okay? And and that always brings me a big sense of comfort because typically small things fall away. And what I've learned is especially in medically kind of scary scenarios, you're really just wildly looking around and trying to figure out where your loved ones are. Like where are my parents? Where are the people that I love the most? And that at the end of the day, in addition to like my belief in God is, is how I think about things. Like when I, even when I zoom out, I like, I think about that in the context of God. Um, but yeah, when things are rough, that's, that's the tactic that I use. I don't feel like I have a lot of stress because of that. Most things that I work on and all the busyness on the day to day, it all doesn't matter. It's just all that matters is like how you relate to others and how you relate to God. And to me, like that, that's kind of enough for me. <laughs> Mm, I really, really like that. Thank you, Rose, for your time today and um, safe travels and just all my best wishes with everything that's going on. Oh, thank you. I really appreciated being on this. It was awesome. It was very fun. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye.